Today we come to the fifth and final sermon in our series entitled Faith, a Study in the Life of Abraham. This morning we come to one of the more familiar stories in all the Old Testament. I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 22. I'll be reading verses 1 to 19. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Genesis chapter 22, allow me to begin at verse 1, we'll conclude at verse 19. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the knife and the fire. And the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time. And he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants. They set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Much has happened since we last saw Abraham staring at the smoldering cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
When the curtain lifts on the previous chapter of Genesis 21, we read the words, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah. He remembered his promise. She became pregnant. She bore Abraham a son. And Abraham gave him the name Isaac. Finally, the God who made the promise made good on the promise. You may recall that Abraham had been waiting 25 years for the promised child Isaac to be born. 25 years is a mighty long time to wait on God, isn't it? Maybe some of you are here this morning and you know what it is to pray for a spouse for 25 years, to pray for employment for 25 years, to pray for a family member for 25 years, to pray for the retrieval of a prodigal for 25 years. 25 years is a mighty long time to wait on the Lord. Yet Abraham and Sarah had waited for the better part of two and a half decades. Now along the way, they did grow frustrated as would anyone else. On a couple of occasions, they tried to take matters into their own hands and concoct a uh, scheme to help God out from his divine dilemma. Can I let you in on a little secret? God doesn't need our help to help him in his perceived divine dilemmas. On one occasion, Abraham said to the Lord, I have selected a servant to be my son through Eliezer of Damascus. I will build a family. And the Lord said to Abraham, that's a fine idea, but that's not my idea. Go outside and look up at the stars. Count them if you can. For as numerous as the stars in the sky, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed God and it was credited unto him as righteousness. Years later, it was Sarah who grew frustrated. She came to Abraham with a scheme. She said, uh, what if you uh, take my maidservant and sleep with her? What if you just hook up with Hagar? Maybe she can conceive and, and you can build a family through her. What do you think about that idea? And I promise you that initially Abraham wondered, is this a trick question? I mean, kind of like when you ask, uh, does the brown toga make you look fat? I mean, is this one of those trick questions? She insisted, Abraham obliged, and Hagar conceived. She did give birth to a son. His name was Ishmael. But after Hagar gave birth to a son, there was a great deal of jealousy between Sarah and Hagar. More years passed. There was still no bouncing baby boy from the womb of Sarah. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up with two visitors. They come and stand on the porch of Abraham's dwelling place. The Lord said to Abraham, by this time next year, your wife will conceive and she will give birth to a son, your son, and you'll name him Isaac. Abraham sighed. Sarah laughed, but God was serious. And at the ripe young age of 100, and Sarah only being 90, she conceived, gave birth to a son. God was gracious. He remembered the promise. And Abraham named him Isaac. Finally, the God who made the promise made good on the promise. More years passed, and as Isaac grew, so did the animosity between Ishmael and Isaac. There was a great deal, deal of rivalry that emerged in this sibling relationship. 
It got to the point where Sarah was about to blow her top and get very frustrated. And Sarah came to her husband, Abraham, and she said, that slave woman has got to go. Because my boy, Isaac, is not going to share any inheritance with her son, Ishmael. And Abraham was between a rock and a hard place. I mean, yes, he adored Isaac, but he also cared for Ishmael as well. And Abraham knew the motto that if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So he went to the Lord, said, God, what do I do? And in Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, the Lord said, listen to your wife. Ladies, can I get an amen? Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, the Lord says to Abraham, listen to your wife, Sarah, for your offspring will be reckoned through Isaac. Abraham dismissed Hagar and Ishmael. He wandered around for a few years. You get to the end of Genesis 21, and we read that Abraham settled in the land of the Philistines for a long time time. Finally, life is good. Finally, life is carefree. Finally, life is comfortable. After all these years, all this waiting, all this wandering, finally, Abraham has a happy wife. And Abraham has the promised child. And Abraham has a lucrative business. And Abraham has good health. And Abraham has a fat bank account. And Abraham is dwelling in the place where God had planted him. He's living in the promised land. Finally, life is good. Life is carefree. Life is comfortable. What more could a guy want? Finally, things are going his way. And then chapter 22 happens. Chapter 22 catches us off guard in the narrative of Abraham. Chapter 22 catches you off guard in the narrative of life as well. Chapter 22 is a time of intense testing, trial, tragedy. The interesting thing about the child of God is that the child of God always lives in one of three perspectives to chapter 22. Either you find yourself smack dab in the middle of it, or you find yourself just getting out of it, or unbeknownst to you, you may be heading right into it. It's chapter 22. And in a moment, life can be turned upside down. Isn't that how life works? Things can be trucking along well. Things can be going fantastic. And in a moment, all of a sudden, life is turned upside down. It's that phone call that you receive telling you that your college-age daughter had just been in a tragic car wreck. And now she's being taken to the hospital. She's fighting for her life. In a moment, Chapter 22 can happen. It's when you are called into the boss and he tells you because of corporate downsizing, because of the economy, even though you've given 27 years to the company, you now no longer have a job. And for the first time ever, you're facing unemployment in a moment. Chapter 22 
just happened. In a moment, when the doctor can walk in and tell you that you have an operable brain tumor, chapter 22 happens. It can happen in a moment when your spouse sits you down and says he no longer loves you and that there's somebody else. Chapter 22. When the doctor tells you that your three-year-old son has leukemia, chapter 22 happens. It happens in a moment, in a flash, in a blink of an eye, when you least expect it. It's chapter 22. It's what happened to Abraham. Things were wonderful, carefree, comfortable. And then the Lord said, to Abraham, take your son, your one and only son Isaac, the one that you love, go to the region of Moriah and there sacrifice him as a burnt offering unto me. This is a sanctimonious sucker punch. You don't see this one coming, neither did Abraham. This is the last thing on Abraham's radar. This seems unthinkable. It, it, it feels unbiblical. It, it seems unimaginable. How can God ask this of the patriarch? I mean, Abraham has been waiting so long. Sarah been waiting so long. How can God give the promised child only to snatch him away? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It's not like Isaac is old enough to be married and have children, even though he's probably older in this text than we first realize. He's not yet met Rebecca. They're not married. They don't have children. It's not like uh, the favor can rest on his children, Abraham's grandchildren. If you snuff out Abraham in this moment, if you snuff out Isaac in this moment, you've snuffed out the future generations of the blessing. How is this possible? Just one chapter earlier, the Lord had already reiterated to Abraham, through Isaac, your offspring will be reckoned. You know the heart of God. This doesn't sound like a request that God would make, does it? In Deuteronomy, it's Moses who codifies that God despises human sacrifice. For it says, do not worship the sovereign Lord in their way, the way pagan people worship their pagan gods, for they offer their sons and daughters as burnt sacrifices unto their gods, and this is detestable in the sight of the Lord. So how can God make such a request? This doesn't seem imaginable, does it? How can God give only to take away? I don't know, any parent that longs to see the death of their child. And I definitely don't know any parent who wants their child to die by their own hands. Abraham knows what God is asking. Abraham has offered burnt sacrifices before. Normally it's an animal, it's always been an animal, a lamb that has been sacrificed unto God. And Abraham knows how it works. To offer a burnt sacrifice meant that Abraham would have to chop to pieces his son. 
Because that's how you sacrifice a lamb. You chop it into pieces. You dismember it. You put it on the fire. It burns completely. Abraham sees the visual. He knows what God is asking. God is asking for Abraham to slice and dice his beloved son. How is this possible? If you're not careful, you'll want to indict God. You'll say that God is doing something unjust. And if you're not careful, you will pull out the moral chair and you'll sit in the chair of morality and you'll say, God, how could you do this to Abraham? But before we become too self-righteous, before we think to ourselves we can't imagine the slicing and dicing of human life, before we become too high and mighty and self-righteous, can I just remind you that every year in our sophisticated culture, we slaughter 1.3 million babies in abortion? Organizations like Planned Parenthood and other places that literally dismember a living person. We don't do this in our sophisticated culture because of religious ritual or right. In America, we simply do it, oftentimes, out of convenience. So before we want to indict God, before we want to wag a finger in the face of the Holy One, let me just remind you that God does all things well. Whatever he permits, he promotes for his glory, whether we see it or not, whether we understand it initially or not. And so we know that this request, which comes from God to Abraham, Abraham doesn't understand fully what's going on. He doesn't know why God is asking this of him, yet he responds in obedience. The very next verse tells us that the next morning, Abraham gets up, he saddles his donkey, he gets two of his servants, he grabs his son Isaac, and they make their way towards Mount Moriah. There's no recorded dialogue. We, we want to become psychoanalytical of Abraham. We want to wonder, what is he thinking? What is he feeling? We put our thoughts into his head and our feelings into his heart, and justifiably so. I understand that, but it really doesn't do any good because the only thing that the word shows us, it shows us his obedience. There's no debate with God. There's no discussion with Sarah. Would you have debated God in this moment? Probably so. Had he said something to Sarah, Sarah would have said, over my dead body, you're going to take my boy up there. There's no debate. There's no dialogue. There's no recorded discussion. I can well imagine that Abraham, and the text tells us that Abraham chops the wood for the sacrifice with every swing of the axe. He must have thought, God, are you sure? Is this what I'm supposed to do? Yet we see that he saddles his donkey, he grabs his two servants, he gets his son, he's got the knife, he's got the fire, off they go. Towards Mount Moriah. They travel some three days, 50 miles from Beersheba to the region of Moriah. On the third day, Abraham looks up and he sees the mountain in the distance. He says to his servants, you stay here with the donkey. The boy and I are going to go worship God. Off they go. Beginning in verse 7 is the first recorded conversation between Father Abraham and his beloved son Isaac. Isaac, uh, 
in a rather inquisitive way, says, hey, Dad, um, I see the knife, and I see the fire. It's in your hands. And I know that we've got the wood because you just strapped it to my back. We're making our way up this mountain. You told me we're going to a worship service, so uh, where's the lamb? And Abraham, with tears streaming down his face, God will provide the lamb, my son. They kept walking. Oftentimes when we visualize that uh, conversation, we, we think of Isaac as being a cute, inquisitive, observant five-year-old boy. And with curly locks of hair that bounce up and down as he skips up the mountain, he just happens to look around and say, hey, there's no lamb. Where's the lamb for sacrifice? And if you and I visualize it that way, that's probably not accurate in the biblical context. Because the truth of the matter is, Isaac is probably a strapping, strong teenage boy. He's got to be strong enough to tote the wood on his back and navigate the rough terrain of the mountainside. Furthermore, we're told at the very end of Genesis 21 that Abraham lived in the land of the Philistines for a long time. I don't know how long a long time is, I just know it's a long time. And then the very opening line of Genesis 22 says that sometime later, God spoke to Abraham. I don't know how much time is sometime, but I know it's some time. And so when you put a long time with some time, it probably equals many years. And most believe that in this moment of Genesis 22, Isaac is probably 15 years old, which makes daddy 115 years old. And as they make their way up the mountain. I'm sure that they are talking and telling stories. I'm sure that they're sharing tears. They get to the spot of Mount Moriah. And Abraham begins to construct the altar. Isaac knows exactly what daddy's doing. Isaac is in on the plan. Isaac knows what's going on. The father did not have to drag Isaac kicking and screaming to the altar. Isaac voluntarily, willingly laid himself on the altar. The reason I know this is because if Isaac didn't know what was going on and daddy began to seize him and Abraham laid Isaac on the altar, push comes to shove, Isaac can whip his old man, outrace him down the mountain. Isaac knows what's going on. He knows that he's going to be sacrificed. And the scene is so dramatic, isn't it? Abraham must have kissed his son numerous times. He said, son, you know I love you. You know daddy cares for you. And he probably covered the eyes of Isaac. And his 115-year-old hand grabbed the blade and lifted it to the sky. His hand had to be shaking. It's 115 years old, right? He's nervous. He can't imagine this. He wants 
to kill his son with one swift blow. He can't imagine having to stab his son multiple times. He's hoping just to, just to be able to stab it through his chest once and get it over with. He covers the eyes of Isaac. He lifts the dagger in the air. The silver blade shivers against the Palestinian son. And as he's about to drive it into the chest of his one and only son, his beloved son Isaac, the angel says, Abraham, Abraham, stop! For now I know that you will not withhold anything from me, not even your one and only son. Abraham drops the dagger. He picks up his son, and I'm sure he kisses him, and he looks up, and there in the thicket is a male lamb caught by its horns. And Abraham shows us one of the first pictures of substitutionary atonement in all the Bible. And he goes over and he takes that ram and he sacrifices it in place of his son, Isaac. And they worship the Lord. And the angel speaks a second time, reaffirming, reiterating the promise of God that Abraham will be a great nation. That through his offspring, all the nations on earth will be blessed. Before they make their way down the mountain, Abraham says to his son, this is Jehovah Jireh. For on the mountain of God, it will be provided. Jehovah means God, Jireh means provided. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Moses, who's the author of the text, tells us that to this day, that mountain is known as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. They make their way down the mountain. They reunite with the servants. They saddle the donkey once again. They travel the 50 miles back to Beersheba. And there Abraham stays. What a story. It's an emotional roller coaster, is it not? But what do you take from this story? What's the point of the story? I mean, is the point that, that God just toys with the patriarch? I mean, what's the point? Certainly God knows how it's going to end before it ever begins. Why would God do this to Abraham? Why would he permit this? Why would he allow this to happen? Why would he ask Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac? Why would this happen? Today, let me give you two takeaways from chapter 22. The first one is this. That faith in God must be on display for others to see. Faith in God must be on display for others to see. Over the last five weeks, we have learned a lot about faith, have we not? We've said that faith always begins with God. That faith never leaves us where we are, but leads us where God wants us to be. That faith is a one-way ticket of absolute obedience. That faith is taking God at his word. That faith takes our, our can'ts, I can't, and turns it into he can. That the heart of faith is prayer. At the heart of prayer is faith. That faith fundamentally is being obedient to the commands of God. And here this morning, we discover that faith must be on display for others to see. It's one thing for you to say that you have faith. It's something totally different for you to show faith. 
It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to show it. At the very outset of this story, we are given a hint that really helps us to unlock the meaning of the text. The very opening line of Genesis 22.1 says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. This whole story is a test. This whole story is a trial. Oftentimes, we confuse a test with a temptation. And they're different. They're different in purpose and they're different in source. For the purpose of a test is to build faith. The purpose of temptation is to destroy faith. The source of a test is God. The source of temptation is the devil. James, the brother of our Lord, says that God cannot be tempted to do evil, nor can he tempt any of his children to do evil as well. And God cannot tempt us, but he sure can test us. What's the purpose of a test? A test pulls out faith that is within us. A test, a trial, it squeezes us. And whatever's on the inside comes out. When we're put to the test, when we're put through a trial, when we endure a tragedy, we are squeezed and what's on the inside does come out. So when you're squeezed, what comes out? Is it frustration or faith? When you're squeezed, do you bless or do you blast another person? When you're squeezed, what comes out? Resentment, anger, bitterness? When you're squeezed, what comes out? And the purpose of a trial, the purpose of a test is to pull faith out of us. Because faith in God, if it's anything, must be on display for others to see. In this story, this experience is a trial that pulls faith out of Abraham. The question has often been asked, where does faith come from? Does it come from God or does it come from humanity? And the answer is yes. Faith is a gift from God. He plants it inside of you. And faith is a willful human response. You respond to God in faith. And when you're squeezed, it is that faith that is pulled out of you. You remember all throughout the narrative of Abraham, there are two implicit questions. Do you trust me? Will you obey me? It's in Abraham's narrative. It's in your narrative. It's woven all throughout. Do you trust me? Will you obey me? Do you trust me with your past? Do you trust me with your future? Will you obey me in what to say? Will you obey me in where to go? Do you trust me? Will you obey me? Do you trust me? Will you obey me? It's a constant tennis match between you and the Lord. And the Lord is constantly asking, do you trust me? Will you obey me? And once again, James, the brother of our Lord, talking about Father Abraham, said that Abraham's faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. He wasn't just a man of faith in word. He was a man of faith in action. He didn't just speak it. He showed it because faith 
must be on display for others to see. You and I uh, come to this story, and we've got to ask ourselves, is there anything in our life that we are unwilling to sacrifice to God? You remember, the angel comes to Abraham and says, don't touch the boy, for now I know that you will not withhold anything from me, not even your one and only son, Isaac. Is there anything in your life that you're not willing to sacrifice to God? Don't answer that too quickly. I know the Sunday answer. I know the church response. But is there anything in your life that you're unwilling to sacrifice to the Lord? I've got to tell you that um, when I entertain that question, there are a few things that pop into my mind. If the Lord said, um, I am going to take the health of your wife, will you sacrifice her to me? I would say, Lord, please take my health, not hers. Or if the Lord said, um, I am going to take the life of your son or your daughter. Or if the Lord said, um, I, I need your calling. And you're no longer ever going to preach again. Give me your vocal cords. Or if the Lord said, um, I'm going to take back this congregation that you love. You've only been here nine months, but I've got something else for them. If the Lord were to say that, I think I would really have a conversation with God. Lord, are you serious? How can you give only to snatch away? Lord, I love my wife. I love my children. I love this congregation. I love the calling that you have on my life. Lord, are you going to take this from me? Why? And all the while, at the end of the trial, at the end of the testing, I've got to be able to say what Abraham said, I will obey you and I will trust you. I don't understand it all, but I will trust you and I will obey you. Because faith in God must be on display for others to see. The second takeaway, and I got to get to it quickly. The second takeaway is this, that faith in God is grounded in the hope of the resurrection of Christ. Faith in God is grounded in the hope of the resurrection of Christ. This story is all about the resurrection of Jesus. This story is about Christ. Isaac is a prototype of Jesus. Like Isaac, it is Jesus who will have the wood strapped to his back. He'll make his way up Mount Calvary. He will voluntarily and willingly die on the cross for us. God the Father did not have to drag Jesus kicking and screaming to Mount Calvary. Jesus went voluntarily because Jesus was in on the plan. He knew what was about to happen. And Jesus is not only like Isaac, but he's also like the male lamb. He's the ram who was 
purchased for us, placed in our spot, and was crucified in our place. He is our sufficient substitutionary atonement on our behalf. This story is about Jesus. And even though Abraham does not have as developed a Christology as you do, Abraham believes in the resurrection of Christ. Abraham believes in this. The way you know it is look at verse five. He says to his servants, we, the boy and I, will go worship and we will come back. How is that possible? If the we are going over and one of the we is gonna kill the other we, how are the we's gonna come back unless the we that was killed is raised from the dead so that those can go we, we, we all the way home? I mean, you've got to have resurrection in order for this story to make sense. And in fact, if you don't believe me, the writer of the Hebrew letter says in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham reasoned that God is able to raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, that's exactly what happened because in the mind of Abraham, Isaac was already dead and God was gonna have to bring him back to life. He believes in resurrection. This story is about Jesus because Jesus is not only the author of Scripture, he's the subject of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is not about the plan of salvation, but the man of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham says this mountain, Mount Moriah, is Jehovah Jireh. You do know that's the very same place that Solomon built his temple that's this very same place, geographical location, where Mount Calvary resides and Jesus stumbles and staggers outside of the city streets of Jerusalem and is crucified. You do know that's the very same place where Jesus will come back one day and set up his kingdom on earth. Jehovah Jireh. On the mountain, God will provide. Listen, my friend, I don't know what testing or trial, I don't know the details of your Genesis 22, but all I can tell you is Jehovah Jireh. Amen. On the mountain, on that mountain, on that specific mountain, God will provide. He will provide the ram that will take away the sins of the world. He will provide the one that will be sacrificed in our place on that mountain. He'll provide salvation for sinners on that mountain. He'll provide grace to the needy on that mountain. He will give mercy to the marginalized on that mountain. He will give healing to the hurting on that mountain. He will give strength to the one who is weak on that mountain. God will provide on that mountain, on Mount Calvary, on Mount Moriah, Jehovah Jireh. You come into church this morning and I just want to tell you Jehovah Jireh our God is able because our faith is grounded in the hope of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ because our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and his righteousness and I dare not trust the sweetest frame but I wholly lean on Jesus name on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand when he shall come with trumpet sound oh may I then in him be found dressed faultless to stand before the throne of God faultless to stand in his presence oh Lord Jesus help me out now you know that Christ is able to do immeasurably more we can ever think or imagine Jehovah Jireh on the mountain God will provide 
You come in this morning. And maybe some of you are in Genesis 22. A time of intense testing. Some of you just left it. Some of you don't know it, but you're about to enter it. Whenever you face Genesis 22, just know that faith in God must be on display for others to see. And that faith in God is always grounded in the hope of the resurrection of Christ. So regardless of the trial, the trouble, regardless of the tragedy, regardless of the testing, look to the mountain of God, Jehovah Jireh. Our God will provide. Heavenly Father, we give this invitation. Help us to run to the cross of Calvary and find healing and help in time of need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.